this uh, police officer who was doing criminal interrogations. And every time I would administer a test in the classroom of empathy or emotional perception, this person would get, you know, close to perfection. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Casty and Igor Grossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research on the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Firstly, uh, thank you all to our listeners. This is episode four. We have been throwing all sorts of topics at you. We've been dealing with death. We've been dealing with intelligence. And today is a very exciting topic, perhaps a little lighter than last episode. Today we are talking about wisdom and emotions. Our episode today is episode four, Yoda versus Spock. We are very lucky today to have a professor from the uh, Rotman School of Management. Stefan Cote is based at the University of Toronto and he is a specialist in emotional intelligence and the relationship between social class and inequality. Stefan, hello and welcome. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for uh, tuning in today. Uh, Igor, are you there? I'm here. Okay, fantastic. I had a quote. I, I sometimes like to start with a quote. It is um, something to perhaps kind of set the foundations for today's episode. It's from Antonio Damasio, a neuroscientist. And he said, we are not thinking machines that feel. We are feeling machines that think. So, Igor, over to you. Oh man, thinking and feeling. So this, uh, this is actually the, the, the title for our episode about Yoda and Spock. The way how it came up, why we decided to talk about emotions and wisdom is because quite a, a lot in our cultural narratives, we think about, uh, well, what is the role of emotions? And should we just, uh, are they hurting us? Should we just downregulate them? Should we be like Spock from Star Trek? <laughs> or should we... Uh, you know, try to approach it somewhat differently, maybe recognize our emotions to become in tune in, uh, with our emotions and the relationships between them. Like in the Star Wars, I'm more of a Star Wars fan, mm -hmm. um, Yoda uh, comes up. And I think that was one of the key issues that motivated us, right, Charles, to start uh, thinking about the role of emotions for wisdom. Uh, it's also a big topic. Uh, Damasio is not the only one. Actually, I just got a book a few days ago from Jonathan Rauch. It's a new book, uh, The Happiness Curve. Jonathan Rauch is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And The Happiness Curve is about why life gets better after 50. Oh. And so in this book that he sent to me, Jonathan writes about wisdom and emotional balance. And so he says that wisdom characteristic that comes up consistently across eras and cultures is emotional balance. Wisdom does not imply always being calm and tranquil by any means, but it does imply being good at emotion regulation and thus being less likely to fly off the handle in a provocative situation. And um, then he talks about there's another kind of balance also characterizes wisdom, the ability to maintain emotional and intellectual equilibrium in uncertain, ambiguous situations, which is challenging. So <laughs> I will not go much further into this, but I thought like this would be a great topic for a discussion. Like to start, what is the role of emotions? Should we just downregulate our emotions? Should we try to recognize the emotions? And that's why we brought... Uh, Stefan in, right, Stefan? You, yes, because right. Stefan is the expert on uh, emotion regulation, emotional intelligence. So Stefan, what do you think about this general idea? I mean, well, I guess at some point we'll get to the topic of how you perceive uh, the role of wisdom for emotion regulation. 
but uh, how do you explain the role of emotions for everyday life whenever people on the street ask you about what are you doing? Yeah, I, I, and that's a fundamental question, right? Are emotions bugs in the system or are they helpful to us or are they functional in some way? And it's a big debate. It's been a big debate because we can all think of situations where emotions have kind of led us astray, right? We've made mm-hmm. done something stupid because yeah. we're overly angry, or overly happy, or overly sad, or and we can also think probably of ways where when or, or situations when uh, emotions have helped us, right? So we're you know happy about something, so we're better able to kind of um, enjoy it. So my answer to that is that emotions generally, overall form a functional system that's evolved to help us in many ways. So each of the separate emotions that we have, so be it like anger or sadness or anxiety or the positive ones like pride or happiness, has really helped her, helps us take uh, to leverage or opportunities that we have that exist out there and to address challenges that we're confronted with. So for example, anger uh, is functional because it helps us address situations where people might have treated us unfairly. So there's a reason why it's there. Now, having said that, we don't always feel the right emotion at the right time, at the right level of intensity. And this is when we start thinking of situations where emotions have led us astray. So it's an overall system that, that works well, but that can sometimes lead us astray. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, that, that completely resonates with my experience of emotions. But, but that, que- that point that you made at the end, saying sometimes anger might be the right thing to sort of follow or respond to, but sometimes not. Um, so yep. it's very tricky to know in the moment when the emotion that you're experiencing is something, it's a helpful signal which is trying to guide you towards a certain kind of action that will be help, that will be beneficial. But at the same time, it might not. It might be something that you should be down-regulating. So how on earth are we supposed to, in the moment, tell the difference? Yeah. I'd say in most people, like, the presence of the emotion, the kind of the elicitation of the emotion itself is, you know, something that is a signal that's useful, like majority of the time. I, I think the cases where emotions become bugs in the system is when they're felt at the wrong level of intensity or the wrong, like the wrong context. But it, it, this gets into issues of what is it that you need to be wise about, right? So mm-hmm. is it, are you trying to downregulate kind of what you feel inside? Maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe what's really important is to downregulate your expression of it, your display of it to other people, right? So how you decide in a moment, I would say like trust, you know, generally I trust the emotions that you feel and understand that they're trying to tell you something, but then pretty quickly make a decision about whether it's wise to express and display it. And if so, if it's wise to express it, at what level of intensity do you need to actually downregulate a bit of what you're feeling? Yeah, yeah. Do When you sort of share these ideas with people, do they tend to... Because one thing that occurs to me, if I was, if people were listening to this, they might say, when I'm in an emotion, heightened emotional state what you're asking me to do from that sort of prescription sounds like very sort of a rational response. Mm -hmm. And when I'm already sort of overwhelmed with emotion, um, I can imagine that people might say, how on earth am I going to pull myself out of that feeling? 
to be able to respond in this very sensible, rational way. Yeah, I think there's something that comes with practice, comes with time. At first, it is easy to get overwhelmed by the emotions. As people become more emotionally intelligent, wiser about their emotions, they tend to use certain strategies pretty consistently, almost automatically, that prevents them from getting overwhelmed with emotions. So I'm sure, for example, the strategy that people talk about of kind of cognitive reappraisal, kind of an idea for like cognitive behavioral therapy mm. of thinking about what people say, thinking about what happens, thinking about news in a way that changes its emotional impact to make it less vivid, to make it less intense is something that people can, I think, start using more regularly. You know, that one of the explanation why people become like they report being happier as they get older is that they're just better able to kind of automatically use these strategies where things aren't as intense mm. and they're able to frame things that happen to them in a way that makes them less overwhelmed with emotion and unable to really think about their emotions. A lot of people might regret, you know, thing, thing, times that they you know, got too emotional about something when they were like in their teens and 20s and wish they had been able to address those, you know. I mean, Charles, Charles is uh, laughing, maybe something <laughs> came yeah, up. Yeah, that sounds uh, familiar, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, do, do, you, do, you, do you meet a lot of uh, people who expect you to have developed a huge amount of emotional intelligence, considering it's your area of research? You know, say, does, does, do your friends sort of tease you, perhaps, if you lose your cool and they sort of wind you up a little bit because they <laughs> expect that you will have yeah. developed all sorts of strategies? Definitely. And that's why, so people, one common thing I get is that I, I just don't feel emotion. Uh, so that's the <laughs> counterintuitive yeah, Mr. Uh, perception. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That, um, so they might associate emotional intelligence with not having much emotion. And there might be a bit of a correlation there because if, if part of emotion, emotional intelligence is to be able to downregulate, you know, emotions when they're too intense, then, you would expect people high in emotional intelligence express no emotion. But I get that a lot. And also for that reason, I guess I am quite mindful of I can't really lose uh, my cool too often. So, uh, you know, so maybe that plays a role there. Well, I mean, there is also yeah. the alternative uh, view that, you know, psychologists tend to study the things that they lack. Yeah, well, that's that's how uh, it's sometimes framed. It's like, well, they, they kind of mistake emotional intelligence for emotion. but say you have no emotion. That's why you study emotional intelligence. Right, uh, right. You know? So actually, if you talk about emotional intelligence, I don't think so far we defined for our listeners yep. what emotional intelligence is, or there are different probably definitions. So let's maybe start with that. So Stefan, how do you define emotional intelligence? So it's a series, a set of capabilities that have to do with emotions. So kind of the feelings that we have, anger, sadness, embarrassment, happiness, pride, those emotions and others. And capabilities here is really key. They are, mm -hmm. it's a form of intelligence. So it's an individual difference. Some people are better than others at doing certain tasks in the domain of emotion, just like mathematical intelligence or quantitative intelligence is about 
individual variation, variation between people and how good people are at using math and performing mathematical operations mm. or verbal intelligence is about, you know, individual differences in how well people, how good people are at using language and knowing vocabulary and understanding written text. Emotional intelligence is individual variation, individual differences in how good people are at performing certain emotional tasks. And those tasks are identifying emotions in oneself and in other people. So having self-awareness, knowing how we're feeling, identifying other people, identifying other people's emotions. So having this empathy and being socially perceptive, understanding the causes of emotion. So if I or other someone else feeling angry, identifying the correct origin of that, what caused the anger, not being confused about it. And also regulating, changing emotions when appropriate, successfully. Coping, you know, sometimes is used. So it's a series of skills having to do with perceiving emotions in ourselves and in other people, in understanding the causes of these emotions, and being able to change emotions when we want to do that. So there are other concepts that are often invoked, and that's the reason I want you to define it, that currently sort of popped out in uh, emotion research, in affective sciences in the last 5-10 years, probably 15 years. For instance, differentiation of your emotions, uh, experiencing a diversity of your emotions, granularity. So James Gross and uh, Lisa Barrett talk about emotional granularity. Mm -hmm. How do those concepts relate to the notion of emotional intelligence, in your opinion? Yeah, so those concepts could be dimensions of emotional intelligence only if there's an element of correctness to them, right? Mm -hmm. So granularity or differentiation in itself is not a, it's not a dimension where there's necessarily a correct answer because, you know, if my emotions, if I happen to feel like five emotions on a given afternoon and, you know, you happen to feel like eight emotions on a given afternoon, well, your emotions are more differentiated than mine, but that doesn't mean you're more correct than me. Maybe it's more appropriate for me to experience five of them and maybe it's mm -hmm. more correct for you to experience eight of them. It becomes a dimension of emotional intelligence if you ask me to identify how many and which emotions I felt, and then you can compare it. If you have some kind of objective measure or some, some other measure, you can compare what I say mm -hmm. to, the, to reality, right? Um, so I say a lot of these concepts, like the ones you mentioned, I would say are more descriptions, like personality traits, rather than abilities or intelligence or capabilities. So I'm using abilities, capabilities, intelligence kind of interchangeably so that there, there are individual difference where some people are more correct than others. And the correctness is really key. It should be, it, sh it should be possible to compare the performance on the task, whether it's like trying to guess what other people are feeling or trying to change an emotion quite a bit with a criterion that will tell you how well the person 
did. So a lot of these other traits uh, are actually, a lot of these constructs are actually more personality traits because they just describe the person and don't Mm -hmm. necessarily call something more or less correct. Like even neuroticism, emotional stability, that kind of one trait at one end, neuroticism, emotional stability, it's a descriptor of the person, right? So is this a person who tends to feel more positive or more negative emotions overall and also whose emotions tend to fluctuate more versus less? But they're describing the person and maybe at some point you can say, well, you can value, you know, being more positive more of the time. But I don't, I don't think I would go as far as saying that it's more correct to feel more positive emotions rather than not. Because what if the context like doesn't call for positive emotions? Right. So there's this element of correctness uh, that is really key uh, to calling something an intelligence, mm-hmm. an ability, a capability. I think that would probably surprise people, the idea that you would be able to have a correct answer in this mm-hmm. sort of realm. I completely understand where you're coming from. It makes it, if you can do that, then you can get robust about it. But do you sometimes have trouble persuading people that, no, 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 no this is definitely the correct answer? Yes. Uh, and I think part of it is, it depends on the scale, right? So Sometimes we might do research with, let's say, couples, and they are interacting. We ask them to talk about something specific. Like we could ask them, talk about uh, a, something that you would like the other person to change, or talk about a time that, or talk a, a way in which you feel a lot of gratitude towards your your partner. But let, let's focus on the change one, for example. So I'm with my partner, and she's asking me to change something, and then. One dimension of emotional intelligence that's evolved here is like, am I able to read her emotions, right? So at the end of this interaction, she might report, you know, her emotions. Then I am tasked with, you know, identifying how she felt. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, if she says that her anger was like a nate, and I say a two, like I totally miss it. Mm-hmm. Then it's hard. I think it's hard to argue that was not, you know, incorrect, right? Yeah. So, or another one could be another paradigm that sometimes we've used is try to change your facial display of emotion so that either like you're hiding all of your like facial display so that nobody who, somebody who looks at you wouldn't be able to tell how you're feeling or conversely express as much as possible. You can actually like, measure with like sensors on your face how much your muscles move right so here the correctness or the level of performance is like have you actually moved your muscles a lot right so but having said that for many of the dimensions of emotional intelligence correctness is contextual it might differ depending on country it might differ based on all kinds of different cultural elements it might differ based on you know, just a context of uh, it can differ based on like in one organization, it might be, mm. you know, more appropriate to express emotions and the other that has a different organizational culture, it's not. So that really calls for understanding or take into account in evaluating the performance, what the norms, what the context is. And that's something that is tricky to do at this point because we, we're still trying to understand what those emotional norms are and how they vary, right? So Mm -hmm. in a way, like the research or the theory of emotional intelligence kind of running ahead 
of some basic emotion research. I've always felt, I dawned on me about like five, six years ago that in order to do like a, a perfect assessment of emotional intelligence, we need to be like 50 or 100 years ahead in just basic emotion research. But we can use what we have so far to do things that I think are, are, are valid. That's really interesting because you suggest that it's not like that you just like more is better because in order to understand what is better, you really need to understand the features of the situation of the context uh, that you're studying. And uh, that's the key difference from uh, other measure markers of uh, one's emotional experience that you mentioned this uh, granularity, the diversity and whatnot, right? So that's, uh, that's really an interesting twist and a caveat because quite often people say, oh, if only you could feel less or if only you could feel more. And you just say, well, it, it, you need to know what is appropriate in a given situation, which presents a big challenge uh, for uh, researchers uh, who just want to use, let's say, a quick and dirty scale, right? Because oh, yeah. uh, they just take the scale and try to apply it uh, to a context that is completely novel, and that's not what the scale was developed for. And then they th- th- that doesn't make any sense, right? But th- that's that's a challenge. That's a big challenge for researchers. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I mean that, that gets into the issue of how you assess emotional intelligence, and just like you know, an IQ test needs to have a certain number of questions in order to be reliable and valid. Same thing for a, an emotional intelligence test. So I mentioned earlier, for example, one way that we can measure it is to show faces uh, of of people or videos of people showing emotions. And then uh, ask the person, the respondent, to guess what emotion is shown. So that takes, you know, a little bit of time, right? So, Igor, you mentioned scales. I mean, I can't, I've stopped counting how often people have emailed me to ask if there's like a five-item scale where people like can just take in 30 seconds to assess, you know, whether they're emotionally intelligent. Because kind of what you're describing here is a bit of a shortcut, like, I'm going to assume that people who are happy, you know, are emotionally intelligent. And that might be true in like, you know, certain context, but I think you would just, you wouldn't be able to get to the level of precision about the description of the context to just know that being happy, it's just too oversimplistic. So yeah, you, you it's kind of a par for the course that if you want to do research on emotional intelligence, find out more about emotional intelligence, you need to administer these tests. Uh, they can be made relatively short, like maybe something that takes like five minutes in order to like measure whether people can read emotions and pictures of faces. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. still more than, you know, a five item kind of 30 second scale. Do you come across or in your research people that are sort of extremely emotionally intelligent? I mean, like I imagine like any sort of spectrum or any sort of scale, there are the people in the tails. Do you come across people that are sort of way ahead of the pack? Not researchers. Um, <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm thinking of Igor's hypothesis here, like yeah. me search hypothesis to see if that, I, I would say, uh, no, I would actually probably rate emotional intelligence researchers as like slightly higher than, right. but only slightly or about average. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've no, I've found, I've uh, met these people through some teaching here I do at the Rotman School of Management a few years ago. This was in an executive program, but uh, we had this uh, police officer who was doing criminal interrogations, 
And part of this person's job was to interrogate, you know, suspected criminals to try to get information, accumulate evidence about their cases. And every time I would administer a test in the classroom of empathy or emotional perception, this person would get, you know, close to perfection, mm. when, you know, the average would be about getting like half of the you know, recognizing half the faces that would show them, right? Mm. This person would get like 95, 100% correct. Whoa. And uh, so uh, this kind of relates to the question of, is this something that you can learn? Well, this person's job was to try to read emotions and people who didn't want to tell them what right. they were feeling and doing. And not only was it part of this person's job, but this person was getting feedback at some point through like trials and uh, outcomes of those trials, whether like his guesses or his reads were correct or not, right? Mm. So there was also another student who was uh, an MBA student who before his MBA was one of these people that asks us questions when we get off the airplane at customs uh, to try to see if we're lying about mm. how much we spent or whether like or worse, you know. And he would also get um, them right. So I've come across people who are extremely emotional intelligent through my teaching on yeah. this topic. Yeah. And it turns out these are people who happen to be using emotional intelligence daily on in their jobs right. and getting feedback about whether they were correct or not about so that they could build a skill which is encouraging for the rest of us it suggests that yeah. it is something that can be learned if i suppose that that feedback that regular pretty much instant feedback is critical to that it's absolutely critical because you can go around making guesses about how people you interact with and your you know, spouses and partners and children and family and friends. You can go around making guesses about how they're feeling on the, you know, all the time. But it's just like anything else. If you're not getting feedback on whether you are, these guesses are correct, uh, you can't identify which parts of that skill you need to improve. Sometimes we ask, like, why is it that, you know, we don't have leaders who are more emotional intelligence or politicians that we are not more emotional intelligence? It's something that's not formally taught, you know, it's mm. starting to, but it's only formally taught, you know, in these kinds of jobs that kind of require you to use it in order to perform well. And there's probably also a chicken egg question if it's taught or if people self-select themselves into these jobs because yes. they have particular ability. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So it could be, yeah, it could be that these two people happen to to be really good to begin with. Right. I mean, if I remember correctly, they did say that they kind of learn on a job to get better at it, but that's also uh -huh. anecdotal, right? So. Right. But also from from what you were describing earlier about how you define emotional intelligence, it seems to have quite a lot of aspects to it. So, you know, reading emotions in someone else's face. Is just one aspect of you know these other, these other things. You need to understand how emotions work. You need to be able to use them. You need to be able to regulate them. So even if you sort of like that policeman, you know, who was able to ace that test mm -hmm. of recognizing all the emotions in a face, that doesn't necessarily mean that you would, you know, understand what the significance of the emotions are or do any of the other important things that you need to be able to do to meet your your idea of uh, and your definition of emotional intelligence. Yeah, that's a good point. We can't assume, and the correlations aren't extremely high, that somebody who's good at perceiving other people's emotions 
is also good at regulating emotions. You can think of a situation. We have, we have some evidence from one study that uh, where we look at people who are, that, that, that in order to be effective in a team, you need to be able to both perceive emotions quite well and be able to regulate what you perceive, what you find out through this accurate perception also quite well. That if you, if you actually lack one of those two, then it's the same as having none of those, neither of those skills that you need to perceive and regulate. And it turns out, you know, there's a lot of people that perceive well and don't regulate or right. vice versa. I thought right. I had a hypothesis that the people who would be the worse off would be those who perceive but are terrible at regulating so there are people who like know everything that's going on they like realize when people hate them <laughs> right. realize where people are angry with them or and just are terrible at dealing about it and maybe you know i, I think i've known some people who are like that so it's kind of weird yeah. right they have like one skill that they excel at but it's it's it backfires completely because they can't kind of deal with what they're discovering uh but actually no the the the, the data actually suggests that these people are uh no worse off than people have the neither of those skills yeah Right. So it's not like this kind of downside of empathy where you have this empathic distress well, becoming overwhelmed. Here. Well, there might be some some context where that, that is true, right? So there's this research by a, a relationship researcher, William Ickes, who what, what, what they did is that they, they put people in a lab and then they had them discuss. Um, so these were like, you know, long-term relationships mm-hmm. or married couples. And uh, they actually had them discuss other people they find attractive and um, it really turns dangerous. out, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why would anyone sign up for that? <laughs> well, I don't think they knew that they were right. asking that, that question. <laughs> so at some point, I think they had to discuss, like, talk about some people, some somebody else outside of the relationship you think is really attractive. And it was the partners who were really empathically accurate, who could read their partner's emotions, who ended up reporting they were less uh, involved in this relationship after because they're the ones who could perceive all this excitement that their partner was feeling about the uh, the alternative partner. So uh, so there might be some context mm-hmm. like that where uh, you it might just backfire to know too much. But I haven't seen a lot of evidence. Like that's the one context where I've seen that being too perceptive can backfire. I haven't seen a lot of other evidence for that. I would, if I was chatting to friends of mine or family members and I was talking about emotional intelligence as I was getting ready for this episode, most of them would assume that emotionally intelligent people are also by default or sort of a, a good people um, and mm-hmm. that emotional intelligence is something that is used to do good or it's a sort of moral it's a moral dimension in some way but yeah. from some some research you sent over some papers and you were kind of suggesting that's an assumption that doesn't necessarily stand up it doesn't necessarily stand up so if you look at the correlation between emotional intelligence and traits like agreeableness we found a positive mm-hmm. correlation a small positive correlation or if you do the reverse, right, you look at emotional intelligence and traits are more negative, that there's a, a small negative correlation, but they're definitely not one and the same at all. This idea has been pushed um, in some of the early, like, popular books about emotional intelligence by mm-hmm. Daniel Goleman, uh, like a science writer, uh, that emotional intelligence equates character. I've always thought that was a dangerous notion, right, because... First of all, any, by definition, skills, capabilities are kind of agnostic as to 
you know, the moral, their moral dimension, right? So mm-hmm. you could, you know, you could manipulate people with a knowledge of like vocabulary by being very articulate that can actually help you mm-hmm. be more manipulative. Uh, just having, you know, knowledge of math, you know, can be very good at math or quantitative analysis can really help you kind of, you know, yourself. Uh, and I've always thought that the same could be true of emotional intelligence because of that, right? Because it's a skill and a skill, you can use a skill for whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, at, but in addition to that, we can all think of situations where people kind of use emotion to manipulate others, right? To like, you know, yeah. pretend to be angry at someone to try to get something they wanted or be particularly charming and likable, right? To eliciting yeah. p- positive mm-hmm. emotions, right? So, so at some point I did want to study it and I basically want to do like a uh, show that, you know, if you're like a nice person, uh, trait in terms of your personality, that if you have emotional intelligence, you can, you can be, you know, a, a, you can actually show, uh, you can be a particularly nice person in terms of your behavior. So we showed that people who are pro-socially oriented or pro-social who care about other people are especially likely to, you know, to be generous with others if they are emotional intelligent. And the idea here, particularly that they're good at regulating their emotions because the thinking was that um, you can then better regulate the emotions that you feel as you try mm-hmm. to achieve your goals. So if you have you know, helpful, you want to be helpful to others, uh, there's some emotions that are involved there, and you can regulate your emotions better and then show that you're a nice person. And then we did the opposite. We went into, uh, we collected data from employees of a university, and we asked them to rate themselves on this dimension of Machiavellianism, so kind of using other people's as a mean to an end and feeling that it's okay to manipulate others to get what you want. And the people who were like Machiavellian were especially likely to do bad things at work, like insult others for their benefit or like, you know, show up Mm -hmm. late and if they were also emotionally intelligent. So emotional intelligence or this emotion regulation, this ability to kind of regulate emotions that you try to accomplish what you do was helpful to the nice people to be nice and was also helpful to the, you know, not nice people to be not nice. Right. <laughs> it's really yeah. interesting because I think in some of your writing, you start with Steve Jobs. And yeah. I, I was always already like, oh, I never thought of him as highly emotional intelligence. But I guess like he is highly Machiavellian, at, at least yeah. in terms of the public perceptions often described as somebody who would twist everybody's arms, make them do what, they, what he wants them to do. Uh, and uh, you spin it as if uh, this is because partially of his high uh, level of emotional intelligence. Yeah, and um, I mean, I, I, I've written about him a bit uh, just in like introducing papers, as you mentioned. Kind of my thinking right now is that he might have been good on certain dimensions of emotional intelligence, right. so that's <laughs> what you're talking about, Charles, but bad at others. So I think he was probably very perceptive. He was able to perceive people's emotions. He was able to understand what would make somebody feel like cool when they use a computer, mm. uh, you know, feel. So that's why the, all the design and the Apple products. Uh, what I believe now is that he might have been uh, deficient in regulating his temper and emotions. Uh, but that might have been a combination that worked particularly well for, for him, right, in terms of, like, being manipulative with employees, right? Right, right. Um, so I think we should speak about some of the controversies. So, Igor, we've been back and forthing about the, um, the jingle fallacy. And I've been right. 
looking looking up a little bit about the jingle fallacy, the jangle fallacy, the jingle jangle fallacy. Could you help us out a little bit here? And and what's this getting at? Yeah, the jingle fallacy is a mistake that where because two things have the same name, we assume that they're the same. Kind of looking at the label that's being put on something. And this is something that can be kind of exploited by people who want to profit about in you know, a certain way, right? So it could be anything, right? It could be like using the label doctor, you know, to mean different things, right? Or, you know, there's all kinds of different doctors and some of these, hey, I'm a doctor when, you know, maybe you're a doctor or something that's, I don't know, uh, not the same as like a medical doctor or right. as prestigious or Do- something. Doctor of philosophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's a, use yeah. all the time. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so people have actually, it's come up in emotional intelligence because I referred early to some of the like earlier to some of the like early writings about emotional intelligence where emotional intelligence was in fact, it did though. Some of these definitions did include some of the skills that we've been talking about. So being perceptive, having empathy, but also everything under the sun, that's a good thing, right? So, you're motivated, then you're emotionally intelligent. If you're happy, you're emotionally intelligent. If you're optimistic, you're emotionally intelligent. If you're a good team player, you're emotionally intelligent. And that's, I mean, that sells well, right? Because then it's like, oh, well, that's very relatable. And it just makes it seem like a more important thing if it's about motivation, being a good team player, being optimistic, rather than a quite a bit narrower set of, um, basically capabilities, the one I mentioned earlier, right? I think those are very important in their own right. There's no need to kind of hype it up, but um, that's what's happened. So I think we have to be careful in terms of how we define uh, emotional intelligence and not call it, or not, 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 not assume that it includes, you know, all these great things because, so first of all, scientifically, definitionally, it just doesn't make any sense, right? So, you know, you, you can be, uh, you know, a good team, like being motivated, for example. I mean, that's defined as like the amount of effort you put into a task. It's not a individual difference where some people mm-hmm. are just better, more correct than others, right? At performing certain tasks. It's just definitionally, it's just not the same psychological construct. But uh, I think what ended up happening is that people have felt like maybe let down a bit by the idea of emotional intelligence because kind of over-promising in terms of uh, what it can, it can bring to you, right? So I think it's a really important skill but it also, uh, it's separate from and should be kind of learned and used in addition to being motivated, uh, being optimistic, being a good team player. That's really interesting because uh, like the reason why we ended up uh, talking about Jingle Fellowships as a promise, uh, some of one of our previous episodes when we started discussing the concept of wisdom, yep. uh, uh, the comment on Twitter was, well, there's like a lot of jingle jangle going on here. Mm-hmm. And so I think both uh, uh, Charles and I, it was like, is that a new insult? What is a jingle jangle? <laughs> so yeah. let me look it up. And then I thought, oh, it's actually a mythological concept. And I thought I knew much about mythology. No, I didn't know about that one. But there's another 
uh, issue that uh, seems to be kind of similar to what I would see in the wisdom research writ large, and that is the distinction between self-report and performance-based measures that there seem to be uh, according to some scholars, not as much overlap in terms of how they are related to each other and different things that seem to be measured. What is your take on that yeah. for emotional intelligence? Oh, uh, I, I absolutely do not think that people can rate their own emotional intelligence or any of their abilities, including you know those included in, in wisdom. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a well-documented fact now that there's a small, maybe moderate-sized correlation, but maybe like 10% overlap between how good people think they are and how good they really are when it's measured in some kind of objective way. That applies to IQ also. I think the correlation mm-hmm. there is like 0.28. So it's for IQ, right? And you would think that people have some sense of their IQ, but no, no, they're, they're, they're not good. <laughs> and I mean, there's a lot of, to, and there's, there's lots of evidence that shows us why these mistakes are made. We uh, often do not have the necessary information to judge, to evaluate ourselves, right? I could go around thinking I make, you know, intelligent decisions or thinking that as it relates to emotion, thinking that I read people well, and, you know, I might not get feedback right. on these guesses very often. So I can't tell. But then there's all these this, this research showing that people have self-serving biases, and they tend to interpret what happens to them in a favorable light and to just evaluate themselves favorably. And then there's other people who actually um, under-evaluate themselves, right? Kind of overly right. pessimistic. Mm-hmm. So... I do not think I, I do think that there's something that there's a construct there that is a that that self-rated emotional intelligence is something that's psychologically meaningful like how what's your belief about how well you read people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right I think that's psychologically interesting just like I think self-rated IQ is also a psychologically important variable like how people go around, like the kind of impact of thinking you're like a smart person, you know, regardless of, of how you really stand on this, this capability, it's kind of interesting. But no, you can't. And that's something that's done, you know, all the time in consulting and mm-hmm. uh, that uh, people get feedback on emotional intelligence based on how they rate themselves or you know, even how others rate them, which I think, you know, has some advantages, but also not the way to do it. Uh, and I think that's actually potentially quite damaging, right? So let's say that I'm actually like pretty good at reading people, that I'm quite perceptive. But when you ask me to rate myself, I am quite pessimistic. And I rate myself, let's say, a 2 on a 1 to 10 scale. So in, in your abilities. In my in, abilities, in, in, yeah. yeah. So rate your abilities to read people's emotions. And I say, you know, I just don't know. I'm clueless. So I rate myself a 2. When in fact, if you measured it objectively by, let's say, showing faces and mm-hmm. matching responses to correct answer, I, w- I would be an 8. Well, if I get my feedback from my consultant saying that I'm a 2, then... Psychologically, that's kind of, you know, damaging, but also I'm going to stop believing and acting upon, you know, on my, my, my reads of other people or, you know, and that's damaging to people, right? Like it's basically Mm -hmm. telling people that it would be telling people that their ability that, you know, giving people, telling people, this is your intelligence on this when you're actually giving them feedback about their self-esteem 
And that's very yeah. dangerous. Like, I don't, mm. I really don't understand. I'm getting angry. Uh, <laughs> see, emotion. You have to downregulate. Uh, yeah, I need to downregulate <laughs> before the end of the podcast. Maybe like a balanced way to think about it is also that, uh, you know, like there are aspects of emotional intelligence, it seems from what you said uh, today and what I know, that uh, in some constrained contexts, could be assessed through some reports. For instance, knowledge, emotional knowledge. But it has to be within that context and you cannot generalize to the general, to the broader construct and you definitely cannot generalize mm -hmm. uh, outside of this context. Like the beauty of the performance measures is that, well, the beauty and the challenge that the, why they are so expensive, so difficult is because they're often constrained to particular situations. Uh, it's not like that you constantly sort of monitor people through some kind of big brother camera. So maybe yeah. we are getting there. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, so far, that's uh, that's sort of like the performance measures always sort of uh, situational. Whereas the self-report, there are some situation-specific vignettes, but nevertheless, the majority of them, those that are most widely used, and that's like, I, I really share this sympathy because I think the same thing is happening in the broader wisdom research where uh, people want to have a quick wisdom scale. And those are the most popular scales out there, even though they are least likely to produce an accurate result. Yeah. Well, I also need to clarify what I mean by self-reports, right? So right. Uh, by self-report, I mean when self-rate, like self-evaluations where people rate mm -hmm their level yeah. of ability. So you can imagine, you mentioned emotional knowledge. So, I mean, maybe uh, you asked me to kind of describe what uh, happens in a scenario and, right. uh, you know, then I, I, I describe what's, what's happening and then some, it's either coded through like textual analysis where it's been predetermined that if I use certain yeah. words and I'm better and if I don't, then I'm worse or it's coded by like people. Just like uh, a lot of, um, I don't know if it's still like that, but I remember like in the G GRE graduate record examination, I think it's called, that uh, you had to kind of interpret a text or write some stuff right. and then it's kind of coded by people. You could do that. That's kind of, I, I wouldn't, but that's not what I meant by self-report. I meant more uh, right, self-evaluation. Right, right. Like yeah. you rate yourself or you rate your friend on uh, on this. And unfortunately, it'd be nice if we did have the ability to rate our abilities, if we were like, kind of wise <laughs> about our abilities. But but we don't. Uh, and we know this. And um, it's uh, very confusing to me why that's not something that's better understood. So, so if um, someone was listening and they wanted, you know, they got fascinated by this concept as as you see it do they have to go to some expensive uh consultancy company to find out go through a battery of you know three days of observations to come up with some reliable sense of their emotional intelligence is there a sort of not super quick and dirty you know five questions but is there some sort of in-between way that people can find out in a meaningful way, roughly where they might be in terms of emotional intelligence as you see it? Is that, is that doable? Yeah, I, I would say no. Um, an honest it, answer, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, I mean, this is where, um, yeah, unfortunately, no. Like, well, I think you have to, like online there are um, some tests where they show you faces that have been validated to... Uh, show emotion. I haven't actually, I don't, I, I can't remember any specific one right now mm. because uh, it's been a while since I searched for them, but that's what, that would be one way, right? I think there are online uh, that would tell you if you're good at picking up emotions and faces. And 
but that's the only one that I can think of that people might be able to find online in terms mm-hmm. of whether they're able to regulate their emotions. So for example, I mentioned earlier, like whether people are able to regulate their emotionally expressive behavior, like their body language and their facial expression. I mean, even for researchers, that's a thing that's pretty difficult to do, yeah. right? So you basically need to put people in a lab and you need to kind of measure how they are uh, when they're not kind of feeling anything and then kind of measure how much they're able to change um, their body language or their emotional expression uh, when they're instructed to do so. So it's it's challenging for that reason. So yeah, I think it is uh, a challenge. It's, it's but it's it's not. I mean, the same challenge for like IQ. I guess I don't know if there's any valid ones that people can take online. But the ones that I use in my research are you know copyrighted and can't mm. really be accessed unless you kind of uh, do it for um, you know for like uh, consulting or hiring or research. So and that's first. I mean, I guess something. I, I know people that are working on it to do mm-hmm. some things that would be available, but right now, no. What is your uh, impression of uh, big data approaches to emotional intelligence? So imagine like uh, you go to a consulting company and they, instead of giving you tasks, they say like, uh, if you're willing to uh, provide us access to all your Facebook or Twitter data from the last uh, three years or whatever, uh, we will be able to calculate your uh, emotional intelligence profile. Do you think that's feasible? Do you think that's uh, any good? I'm not sure, right? Because the challenge is how would you determine whether the data you have about these people from Twitter and stuff is correct, right? So let's say somebody does, you know, express a lot of negative emotions on Twitter. Well, you don't know what their lives are and you don't know if this is this is not kind of the appropriate response to what is happening in this person's lives, right? There needs to be some, you know, compelling way of determining whether what you measure, what you capture through big data is more correct. Right, than there's some kind of a criterion. Yeah, yeah. exactly. What, what often happens in these conversations is... Um, Eagle starts thinking up of new experiments and how he might do them. And and okay. um, I, I start trying to work out how we might be able to tell people what they can actually do um, in their own lives. This is me going in that direction now. So yeah. people are listening and they're saying, I understand the role of emotional intelligence and I'm trying to see how I can employ that concept to take wiser decisions. So is there a sort of framework that people can hold on to or begin to adopt if they're hoping to approach decisions, wise decisions with this sort of emotional support, you know, we're sort of, it seems like we're saying down regulating is not necessarily the way to go always. Um, so what is a kind of handy framework that people could begin yep. to think about to support them in taking wiser decisions? Yeah. So as it relates to decisions, so I'm assuming you're talking about like making decisions about like whether to like take this job or that job or like important decisions like that. Yeah, right. Um, it, it turns out that emotions do influence our decisions and some of those emotions are helpful and some of these emotions are completely useless. So, or can even lead us astray. So the, another concept that we haven't talked about yet is the idea that some emotions are incidental to our decisions. 
So that's a fancy way of saying that there's some emotions that have nothing to do with the emo- the decision we're about to make, right? So if we're like making a decision whether we want to like buy this house, right? It could be that if you had like a frustrating drive to go to see the house, you're in a more kind of angry mood or anxious mood. There are th- other things going on in your job that happen to have nothing to do. I mean, maybe it does financially, but like, you know, some things have just, you have like a you, you, a family member who kind of upset you or something. That's nothing to do with whether it be a good decision to buy this house or like wait for another yeah. one. So these emotions, it turns out they do influence our decisions. So classic experiments have shown that if you show people a movie uh, of something that either makes them upset or happy, and then you give them a task that has nothing to do with the movie they just saw. The emotion they felt because of the movie influences how they do the task. So those are emotions we need to get rid of, right, when we're about to make a decision. So we need to figure out a way to remove them. So one mm-hmm. of the ways that we can go about doing that is to be very self-aware of the emotions we're feeling. So if we're feeling anxious about something, just know it. And then to say, okay, so why is it that I felt anxious, right? What is it that happened to me today that's causing this level of anxiety that I'm feeling as about to make this decision about whether to buy this house or not? And if it's unrelated to uh, downregulated at that point, and may, that, that might require like waiting, like taking a half hour break, you know, to like, distract yourself so that you don't feel anxious about whatever made you feel anxious. But then there's the other's emotions are integral. So if you're about to, if you're about to buy a house and you start feeling anxious because of uh, that's, you're going to make a big financial investment and committing to living in a particular area, then that's really relevant, right? And if you're sure. anxious about it, maybe that's a signal that perhaps you're not making the right decision. So those are emotions that need to be integrated, to be used to make better decisions. So we have to make sure we're not tricked into making decisions based on emotions that have nothing to do with the decision we're about to make. So um, we need to be more acutely aware of the cause of the emotions we feel which requires first sort of acknowledging that we have that emotion and then sort of taking some effort to sort of trace it back to its root and then see if that's relevant to the decision yeah exactly yeah that's fascinating because i can i can really imagine that being something that influences how people respond to their emotions it's not that we're it's not so much about you know, bringing one up or uh, taking an emotion down, but it's just saying, is this emotion actually linked to what I'm taking a decision about? And I I can imagine with very busy lives that we lead, often everything sort of interweaves and gets crossed. And, you you know, you're angry with someone at work and it's nothing to do with them. It's actually because you, you know, your tube was late on the underground or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that facility to link the cause of the emotion to the emotion itself I can imagine mm-hmm. having a tangible uh, impact on the, the quality of the decisions you take. That that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So, I mean, another kind of you mentioned earlier, so uh, what people can do, right? So yeah. I think as it relates to uh, managing their emotions, I think uh, it's important for people to be aware of the array of strategies that are available to them and then to pick among them. So researchers have kind of models of different kind of strategies that people can use. So some of them are strategies that people might underutilize, right? So people talk about, for example, trying to avoid situations that elicit negative emotions. So the selection of situations that you enter 
And often people don't have the luxury of choosing the situations that they're being put in, right, at work mm-hmm. or at home. But I think sometimes people uh, underestimate the impact of situations mm-hmm. on their emotions and underutilize this strategy of situation selection in order to kind of optimize their kind of their well-being. There's this strategy of uh, attentional deployment, so paying attention to certain things rather than others. So, and this can be as simple as in a meeting or something, and there's somebody you don't like to actually like sit in a position where you don't visually see the person because they're like <laughs> on the other side of the room. Yeah. And I think people underestimate the impact of right. strategies like that because right. uh, just like the visual cue of somebody who you don't like might be, um, you know, can be impactful emotionally. Then we talked earlier about this cognitive reappraisal, this idea that you can change the meaning of, of something that happens to you. So that, a classic example for this would be to think of you know, a difficult task or upcoming, something that makes you anxious as a challenge or an opportunity to like, impress certain people or to prove to yourself that you can accomplish something uh, at a high level rather than uh, mm-hmm. a potential threat. And you know, that might sometimes be easier said than done, but... That's, it's been shown that you know, some people can actually reframe certain things. So we talked about it earlier in the sense of at some point you can reframe things so that their emotional impact is kind of very mm-hmm. generally muted, right? So what's the big deal about somebody cutting you off on the street you know, this one time, right? You know, first of all, you can think it's not a big deal. You can also start you know, using empathy to try to say, well, it might not be a likely possibility, but what if there's like a 2% chance that this person just happens to have like a sick child at home and they're just trying to get to mm-hmm. their, you know, sick child faster, you know, that's more unlikely than likely. But what if that one time it is mm-hmm. that person, right? So you, you um, I think in one of the papers that I read of yours, you were talking about deep acting and surface acting responses. So this sounds like what you're talking about here yet you can reframe it at that early stage so you actually feel a different emotion almost versus surface acting which is you know you the emotion's still there but you try and limit how it's expressed is that the kind of idea exactly and deep uh, so sorry surface acting is basically hiding your emotions or pretending pretending to have emotions you don't really have should be like a last resort because it's been found to correlate more strongly with burnout at work and, you know, low satisfaction with life. And the reasons, there's, you know, many different reasons for this, but one of them is that um, when you're surface acting, when you're being inauthentic, when you're showing emotions are different from the ones that you feel, sometimes people can pick up on it and it turns out people respond negatively when they think that your emotions are fake. Um, Yeah. And we've shown this, there's been a lot, there's a line of research in organizational behavior on the effect of deep acting, surface acting among customer service agents. So should you like put on a happy face? How should you put on a happy face at work? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that, you know, uh, consistently the findings indicate that those people are able to like make themselves generally feel like pleasant about the interacting with customers and happy in their job are those who get, you know, better tips and are less likely to want to quit their job. Those who go in the job thinking, I just need to put a smile on my face, even though I'm miserable, are those people who um, end up, you know, reporting Mm -hmm. more burnout. And 
part of the mechanism there is that um, I believe is that people can just tell right. that they're faking. Yeah, and just it's almost worse, well. isn't it? You know, I would if I'm you know, receiving service somewhere and someone's not in a good mood, I'd rather them just express that they're not in a good mood yep. than pretend to be in a good mood because exactly. then it's not only are they not in a good mood but they're also essentially being deceptive it's like a double whammy so exactly yeah. I, I would feel worse about someone you know using that sort of surface acting technique uh so i think we've come uh we discussed a lot of things and we got almost to the end <laughs> stefan what do you yeah. think would be some of the two, three takeaway points from you for any re uh, listeners here who are interested in the topic of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. I think one takeaway is that it matters, it is important, it is a set of capabilities that focus on understanding your own emotions, perceiving and understanding your own emotions, knowing what causes them and being able to change them when they're not the appropriate ones, that it's a dimension of intelligence, just like verbal vocabulary, uh, mathematical quantitative you know, intelligence, that is quite important, you know, that, that has been found to correlate with a number of you know, performance indices and uh, satisfaction in the seas. I think that's that's important for people to take these capabilities seriously. I think people need to be wise about how they can tell whether they have or lack those skills. I think people need to really understand what emotional intelligence is and to uh, therefore be able to understand whether the assessments of it are valid or not. I think that's quite important. I think that's something that should be, yeah, that should like be on people's minds. Understanding emotional intelligence is like definitely like one of the things that they can do in order to be more emotional intelligent, right? So it's, if you kind of know what it's about, you'll start thinking about it more in your life and more mm. getting more feedback about it. And that's when you kind of start kind of building it. It's something that can be leveraged and built uh, just because you're kind of thinking about spending more time and devoting more of your energy to that. And it can therefore have some effects on like relationships, on workplace uh, outcomes, and just, just people's well-being. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Stefan. Thank you for having uh, me. This was a great pleasure to learn from you more about research and emotional intelligence and to join us. You're our second guest. So this is uh, so still building up the audience. It's great to have uh, good friends uh, be able to illuminate us. Thank Hopefully you, Stefan. I, Hopefully I really uh, appreciated that. And I, I, I can see how just beginning to think about it will already sort of go some way to boosting me in the right direction. So uh, I particularly like that idea about thinking about the cause of the particular emotion you're feeling and not getting them mixed up. So I'm going to be working on that and I'll let you know how I get on. All right. Good luck, Charles. Thank you, Igor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I gave up that long time ago. <laughs> so, our next episode... I will actually continue this theme of looking more at the role of contextual factors and specifically we'll tackle the big question in uh, social psychology, uh, the role of uh, situation and of the personal qualities of personality versus the situation. Is it even a dichotomy? And we will have another guest. Uh, this will be a professor from Wake Forest University, Randa J. Vikrame. 
who is an expert on this topic and on positive psychology. So thank you uh, all for listening so far. If you liked uh, what you heard so far, please continue rating us on iTunes and uh, we'll hear you next time.